This is Tops Talk. In this episode, we break down the top prospects who showcase their skills in the Arizona Fall League All-Star Game. And we talk with Meet the Press's Chuck Todd about his love of collecting cards. This is Episode 9. Hi everyone and welcome to Tops Talk, Episode 9, and we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Birch. We have a great episode in store for you this week, which includes an interview with Meet the Press moderator and NBC News political director Chuck Todd. But before I swing it to the interview, I have with me assistant brand manager Matt Bleiberg, who will take us through this week's Bowman Breakdown, which is a segment that gives collectors an inside scoop on who to look out for on the diamond and in the stores. Matt, thanks so much for joining. Pleasure to be with you, Alex. So let's go into the Arizona Fall League. And the Arizona Fall League has given us a lot to talk about, especially because of the All-Star Game that was just played this past weekend. Some great talent was showcased. Alex, you're right. Uh, West All-Stars beat the East All-Stars 8-3. to There was a lot of talent in this game, starting probably with the offense, uh, with your MVP, Gary Sanchez, Mm. New York Yankees catcher. The second straight year that a Yankee has won MVP of the Fall Stars game. Greg Bird, who has done some pretty good things for the Yankees, he won the MVP last year. Uh, and this year, uh, another Yankee, Gary Sanchez, uh, he had a two-run home run off uh, Kyle Freeland, one of the top pitching prospects for the Rockies. Uh, it was a pretty impressive swing. He showed full extension, had about a 107-mile-per-hour exit velocity off his bat. Not sure where he fits uh, in the Yankees' future plans with McCann, Brian McCann uh, firmly entrenched behind home plate. He might DH some. He definitely brought the power. Uh, he was a, he's one of the biggest uh, he's one of the big movers this year prospect wise. Uh, he uh, he did pretty well in AAA. He's here in 2014. Had a lot of strikeouts from a catching standpoint. His release point, his pop time uh, defensively wasn't the best. Definitely improved that. This year, and he actually threw out a runner as well. Yeah, he's a very intriguing prospect, as you're saying, because mm-hmm. he can swing the stick. Mm-hmm. And if he can hit, the Yankees will find a place for of him course. somewhere. Yeah. And you brought up last year's MVP, Greg Bird. Mm-hmm. And that is just an absolutely wonderful example of how quick of an impact these AFLers will be able to have at the big league level because Greg Bird, I mean, what a prominent member of that Yankees 2015 team towards the end of the season Mm -hmm. there once Teixeira got injured. So you saw Gary Sanchez. He impressed. Uh, There were a few others that impressed me. Uh, Austin Meadows, who's arguably the number two prospect uh, in the Pirates organization. He had a pinch hit home run in the sixth inning. That kid can swing it, too. He could. He could. Uh, and he was also in the game with uh, the same team as Clint Frazier, who, <laughs> not, who not he was bad. drafted with and went to rival high schools in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So they have a little bit of a friendly rivalry going Frazier on. Frazier of the uh, Cleveland Indians. Cleveland Indians, yes. Uh, you can look for uh, Meadows' first card. He was in uh, Bowman draft picks and prospects a couple of years ago. Uh, he'll be heavily featured in this year's Bowman products as well. So look out for him in 2016 Bowman baseball. Um, I was probably out of all the offensive and defensive or pitching prospects, I was most impressed by Yurikson Profar, mm. who I'm sure a lot of listeners know 
probably haven't seen recently since he's been injured. The injury bug has hit him a couple of times in the last well, couple of years. Uh, he DH'd in the, in the game, uh, showed off most of his tools. Uh, he's, a, he's a shortstop, but this year in the Fall League, he is primarily a DH, and in the game he was a DH. Uh, went two for three with a couple of walks and a couple of stolen bases. So he showed his keen eye, his wheels. Uh, he knows how to how to play the game. Just a couple of years ago, uh, you know, he was number one according to Baseball America. Yes, he was. Uh, uh, and according to their prospect rankings, uh, ahead of Jose Fernandez, Carlos Correa, Francisco Lindor, who have all made large impacts in the big. So um, he showed what he could do when healthy, and I think the the Rangers will give him a shot in spring training to see if he can uh, reclaim that uh, infield role. Yeah, and I mean, the, once Ian Kinsler left, mm-hmm. I mean, they, that basically opened the door for him to yeah. try and do what he can to get to the big league level and make a big impact. But of yeah. course, his own body really went against that. Exactly. But he, like you said, tons of talent. Mm-hmm. You don't get to the top of prospect rankings, especially mm-hmm. Baseball America's prospect oh, rankings, yeah. if you don't have the necessary talent. So he has just oodles of that. But what he also has, like you said, along with the talent, is the patience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is something that I think a lot of general managers, not just the Texas general manager, <laughs> general managers around the league who would like a shortstop, probably are get, taking a nice long look at. Of course, that's the GM meetings this week. So uh, Yes, yes, that is what I was alluding to, okay. GM meetings. I, 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 figured, I figured as much. Yeah, I mean, who knows what will happen um, with Eurix and Profar, but it, as in what team he'll play for. Mm. But... Yeah. What we do know, and like you said, what he showcased this past weekend was that he's got the talent, and he reminded everybody of just how good he could be. Who yeah. else caught your eye, Matt? I would say Aust- uh, Austin Dean, uh, Merlin's outfielder, is definitely a big prospect mover. Uh, I would say he was probably one of the one or two offensive stars of the East team, which which uh, lost the game. He had a two-run inside the park home run off the starting pitcher for the West, Lucas Sims. Uh, pretty impressive. And uh, Dean has Dean's definitely he increased his stolen base total this year. He has some speed, uh, but I was a bit surprised when that inside the park home run. Uh, he was actually featured in Bo- going over to Bowman cards. Now his Bowman Chrome prospect autograph was featured in this past Bowman Chrome, which uh, debuted a couple months ago. So be on the lookout for that. So um, yeah, that two my- run that inside the parker that was. It wasn't just one of those like little no. squib down the line that you know just gets past the outfielder. Yeah. I mean, this was a line drive. Yeah. Yes, the outf- the right fielder dove and missed it, but it was a a screaming line drive, and mm-hmm. he showed off his wheels, of course. Yeah. But he's got a nice quick swing that mm-hmm. you could tell that once he, you know, puts a little more uh, momentum behind it, he could really pop some out if if he wants to later on in his career. He's got burgeoning power. I think he'll. Uh, it's definitely developing. Uh, a couple of pitching prospects. Yeah, I'm uh, tired of talking yeah, about, about hitting. offense. Uh, Enough hitting. Uh, the pitching is what really impressed me in the game. 25 total strikeouts amongst mm. the two sides in a nine-inning game. 15 for the West uh, side and 10 for the East. Uh, overall, I would say Sean Manaya, the Oakland A's starting pitcher, stood out most. Two innings pitch, four strikeouts, showed off his devastating slider and fastball combo. Uh, he was part of the Ben Zobris trade. Uh, I think the Royals did okay there, winning the World Series. Ben Zobris with a uh, it was a huge help, but the A's are going to have a starting uh, a starting. I would I would say maybe a number two uh, pitcher for the next 
uh, a lot of years because I mean, you have to figure uh, Sunny Gray as well. Oh yeah, but uh, I mean Sunny Gray between Gray and yeah. Manaya. I mean, they could have a really nice one-two punch, and a righty-lefty one-two oh, yeah, punch was true. nice. But Manaya, when I watched him pitch, he really reminds me a lot of Madison Bumgarner, yeah. the way that he throws his arm slots three-quarters, mm-hmm. kind of throws across his body, and he yeah. relies heavily on the fastball in the beginning to set up mm-hmm. the look of that slider, which doesn't move a whole ton, but it moves just enough to differentiate it from the fastball. And then he can drop that very nice curveball. That it's not 12 to 6, and it's not supposed to be. Yeah. It starts at the back of a lefty, and it you know, bends into the zone when done well. So this kid has a lot of looks. But when I saw him, like I said, I mean, Madison Bumgarner through and through, if if <laughs> everything works out nicely for yeah. him, of course, um, so who who else uh, really stuck out to you on the mound? Uh, I would say the, the opposing pitcher Lucas Sims, while he did give up that two run shot, also struck out four. Um, he he showed why he's one of the Braves' top prospect pitchers. Uh, good fastball delivery, definitely definitely stood out to me. Let's talk about guys who maybe were not as highly sought after mm-hmm. in the beginning of the game. But once this game was over, or maybe once this AFL season, you know, really got underway, yeah, they came into view. Yeah, um, probably on the top of my list for prospect movers would be Adam Engel, White Sox outfielder. Uh, he led off and he played the entire game. Oh wow, um, which is pretty impressive for the West Side. He went two for three, a couple of walks, two runs, a stolen base. What, what, you know, that's what you're looking for from your leadoff guy. A lot of prognosticators, prospectors. Ha, do view him as a top of the lineup guy for the White Sox. Um, I would say right now, maybe at the end of the season, he's probably in the top, somewhere like closer to the bottom of the top ten of the White Sox rankings. He's had a he's had a killer uh, fall league, batting a little bit over four hundred, showing off his tools, and I think uh, he's he's going to go far next year. Uh, he's in Double A. You never know. You could see the bigs at the end of the year. Uh, for the White Sox. Uh, another one is Alex Blandino, Cincinnati uh, red shortstop, drafted last year, 2014. Uh, it's also where you can find his uh, first auto card in Bowman draft picks and prospects. Uh, currently the, the team's number seven prospect. Uh, went to Stanford, has a great baseball IQ, uh, very toolsy player. He had a two-run home run in the game. He, he probably is their number two shortstop, uh, or the Reds, the Reds' number two shortstop prospect. So he's not really far down on the list, but I think that this game and also his his exemplary uh, Foley showing will definitely shoot him up the list. And uh, I think he's I think he can, he's about a year away from uh, the Reds' infield. He is the 12th moderator of Meet the Press, an NBC News' political director, and he also just loves baseball cards. Chuck Todd, thank you so much for joining me. Guilty as charged. (laughs) Well, I want to go right into it. Why did you fall in love with baseball card collecting? Well, you know, look, we we all have our first, you know, I remember um, with an Eckerd Drugs, was the name of the drugstore in Miami that I was growing up, that sold them for a quarter. Um, and it was, uh, the first packs I bought were in 79. I think I remember my dad first buying a pack, you know, for me type of thing. And then, you know, he sort of gave me a couple of ways that I could sort them. And then I just got into, you know, that just became, you know, 
I remember I had other friends that were into the whole Star Wars figures and all this stuff. That was never me. Uh, I loved sports. I always loved watching sports with my dad. And so I regularly, you know, so baseball cards were sort of the my outlet for sports when I couldn't go watch sports. It's probably the best way to look at it. Got it. And what's interesting is that for people who, you know, are younger, they really don't understand how important baseball cards were to those who weren't watching sports at that time because that was a lot of the time where you got the information on these players instead of obviously the internet. It was my connection to the whole thing. I mean, here, you got to think about it. This is Miami, 1979, 1980. And we had no, well, all we had was a, one professional uh, sports team and the Dolphins. There was no professional baseball. My dad uh, was a Dodger fan, so therefore I became a Dodger fan. Um, so all we did is during spring training, every every spring training, we drove up to Vero Beach, so that, that was helpful. Um, but I, I even remember my dad and I even had our own rotisserie baseball thing that we would do and and you relied on the sunday paper because that was the one day they put in all the stats for anybody that had an, uh, that had a, uh, you know enough at bats and then um we were also used to the only way we get a dodger box score the same day is we used to then the only reason we subscribed we had an afternoon paper back in the day when there used to be afternoon papers and that was the only reason we had it just so my dad and i could read west coast box scores um and so between, yeah, baseball cards for the stats and then having to cobble together what we cobbled together to, to even follow the Dodgers on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, that that's the, the two of them combined is what kept us uh, into baseball. Yeah, and, and from everything that you're saying, I mean, like you said, this is, it seems to have really made the connection even stronger between you and your father. Well, that's, I mean, look, that's absolutely what it is, and it's sort of like why... You know, my dad died when I was 16, and to this day, you know, it's been some nearly 30 years removed from that. And yet to this day, why do I keep collecting baseball cards? It's sort of like some part of me. It is just, it's this connection to him. Uh, I have kids of my own. Uh, I've got, I'm, um, I think I'm still more into it than they are, but, but they, but they, they say they're into it. <laughs> you know, they want to be, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, you know, and I appreciate them humoring me. I think my, my son really is into it. He's got his own book and we start collecting that way but um it is uh it, it is sort of a yeah for me it's it's a it's a little bit of a uh, of a way to to reminisce sometimes when i don't even realize i'm reminiscing and obviously like you said like this is the reason I, I mainly it seems from what you're saying why you want your kids to collect as well i mean it seems like that that could be a way for you to buy and then for them to remember you as as fondly as as you re- remember your father it, it is. It, I, you know, I know it's 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 hokey, and I'm I'm way into it, and I look at it as a. I also look at it as it's something. I'm I'm building this up, and then I'll I'll keep finishing this collection, whatever it is I'm trying to finish. I mean, I I claim to have a goal. I claim to know what I'm collecting, and and you know that there's a finite that I'm going to collect. Um, but I also view it as something I'll do in my semi-retirement, uh, and at the same time hope that my kids carry on too. You're right. It is sort of this weird thing you want to, because, you know, my dad has the story. Well, I had this card and I had this baseball card, but you know, his mother didn't throw it away. His mother gave it to the, to the, to the kids of a lawn guy. Um, that, that, that's how, that's his story of what happened to his 1952 and 53 and 54 Mickey Mantles that he claims he had. Wow. Those of you really have them, but you know, <laughs> that's, you know, all of those, you know, he always blamed his mother for, Oh yeah, she gave all my, all my toys that are worth something and baseball cards that are worth something to the kids of the, of some lawn guys. And I, and then I, you know, I look back and I'm like, I'm glad she did it because 
these things wouldn't be valuable if they had got if they hadn't been lost. That's true. You know, that's sort of that's sort of the you know part of me is like I hope there are I hope to this day there are plenty of people that throw away their baseball cards of today, so that in thirty years today's baseball cards have a little value. Yeah, for those who are listening, watch out for Chuck Todd who could be coming to take away all your baseball cards to make them more <laughs> valuable. <laughs> you know, what I, you know, it's the other thing that uh, was a huge. It, 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 I think it was a way that my parents used to buy. My parents were 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 way into garage sales. We didn't have a lot of money growing up, so you know that we used garage sales as, a, as when we were looking for new furniture, stuff like that. Well, in the late seventies and early eighties, you could find baseball cards at garage sales. You could find people just getting rid of this stuff, and that was that's what kept me interested. So all I did was I was just scoured, and I knew how to scour a garage sale of where they would be hiring on it. My biggest score was actually a whole bunch of 1960s football cards one time at a garage sale for like 20 bucks. Ended up probably $3,000 worth of football cards for $20. Wow. Yeah. And see, and this is, and like you're saying, this the, the stories that come along with these cards are almost as memorable as the cards themselves. And it really becomes the crux of collecting. And so going from collecting to the actual cards, I'm just curious as what type of cards make you excited like what type of designs do you like well i'm a traditionalist i love the heritage series that is the greatest thing that they could have come up with and it's funny i love heritage hate i'm not a fan of archives the tops are interesting don't ask me why i like heritage or not but there's something about the heritage i think there is the fact that they want to do the real cards. The fact that I am in the midst of also trying to put together original sets from those years. Um, so, look, I'm a traditionalist, and I love anything that feels like a traditional card. I love the idea of where you might accidentally stumble upon a great old card. Um, so, I am, you know, about the only quote unquote new design that I got into uh, for a short period of time is I did enjoy the. Um, collecting me and a, and a roommate got into it in I don't know, when, when the year Jordan played baseball. Mm. Uh, so uh, you had the upper deck had a series. It was an SPs, SPX, and it was the first time they did hologram. That was the only time a, quote, new design drove me to go by, to go into that. Other than that, though, and even now I look back at them, and I'm not that into those holograms. <laughs> I, mean, I still have that collection of those hologram cards, those SP uh, inserts, which were, you know, they were at the time they were difficult to get, but now part of it is you look back on it, and every player's a steroid guy, and nobody wants them. So you're just sort of like, you know, other than Jordan, there was really no good collectible in it ah. because everybody else is A Rod or Bonds or Clemens. You know, those were all the big cards to get, and that and you're like, who wants those? I mean, I'm not a guy who likes celebrating the cheaters. Mm. And I mean, hologram. I mean, that's the ninetieth thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, I know it was the only time I got myself caught up in it. And here's the other thing that I love: what I really have been pleased that Topps has done over the last decade, really since ever since. You know, I feel like Upper Deck drove the industry to do a lot of bad things. Um, you know, the competition. I mean, on one hand, it, it, competition's a good thing, but it 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 was the, the, everybody was trying too hard to. Um, to do cool inserts, uh, to redesign cards in ways that hadn't been thought of and all this stuff, rather than sort of uh, reminding people the history of the game. Topps has done a great job, I think, in these. And I, I collect basically only main sets. I mean, I do the main set of the of the doing. I do Heritage. Uh, I like the and I like the minor and I like the two minor league things. 
Uh, and that's just what I keep up with. Other than that, I mean, I think now in collecting, there's so many different brands. You just have to. I don't I, even I, I could afford to do the high end stuff, but it's almost too manufactured to me. There's something about finding. I'd rather have the the, the rare um, alternative card that is hidden, a, a one out of 200 pack thing. I'd rather go searching for that in a regular set than have some specially, you know, high-end one uh, that you're paying extra money for to get that high-end. But, um, but that's just me, and I know everybody has their own their own thing. But I, I do like how the history of the game, Tops is spending a lot of time helping to teach the history of the game through the insert sets. And I've used that to help my son learn the history of the game. And that's, and that's how I learned the history of the game, was through baseball cards. So... That's what I think Tops has done very well. They've made it easy to teach my son the history of the game before he was born. Yeah, I mean, that is a way that so many kids can learn it now. Obviously, a little bit slower or more piecemeal in a way than if you go on the Internet and open up a gigantic Wikipedia page. But again, that's the, that, the fun of it is opening up the pack and learning a little something that you really didn't know before. Um, and again, tangible. It's always nice. Um, I can only imagine that a design that you at least approved of somewhat was 2014 Allen and Ginter because your mug was on there. <laughs> it was that was about the coolest thing. It was so funny, and I'll, I'll share a story. Like not not everybody, you know. When I first, and you got to get these things, um, you know. When I work for a, a company who uh, has has say over my likeness, uh, type of thing, and they were at first like. Oh, Hey, what do you what do you mean you want to you want to be a baseball card? Is that you sure you want to do this and all this stuff? They didn't say I couldn't do it. They were just they didn't understand. I'm like, oh my god, I would <laughs> I would quit my job to be a baseball card. And I, I tell you, I I get at least you know six seven uh, cards a week to this day. It's now been over a year um, to my house. Just people wanting to sign. I'm I've been a little slow, but I'm pretty good. I get back there. I you know. Sign the cards and, and send them back. It's unbelievable. I can't believe people want my signature on a baseball card. It's sort of like, are you kidding me? But um, you know, I also respect collectors, and it's like you know, there's many people that collect. They try to build a base set with autographs, or they try to build a, a an insert set with autographs. And you know, again, I have my own things that I'm collecting. So you know, my feeling is I respect the collector, uh, and, and uh, you know, always always try to do within reason what what they ask. It is interesting when you get these cards in the mail. It's like, please sign with a red pen, or please sign with this color pen, or can you do this? And it's like, you know, it's all been within reason. <laughs> That's good. Well, I mean, I, I don't think um, I don't think that I could even imagine what that's like being actually being able to be on a baseball card and, and sign that. I mean, it's, it's surreal, man. It's totally surreal. <laughs> Signing that first one, I'm sure you remember that. I well. No, or first when, when, uh, Well, it was no. It was when when uh, you guys came over to like bring the cards over, and I had to sign some in blue. I had to sign, I think, because they were inserts. You know, you sign on the card, so I had to do the. I remember, like, I just couldn't believe even that day when I was asked. I, had, I think I signed 190 in blue ink and 10 in red ink. You know, yeah. Um, and I think that's what it was. And even that is just sort of like you know, and uh, both the large size and the and the mini, and. Um, yeah, that was just like, really? I'm doing it? And of course, I'm sitting there going, oh, my signature's getting sloppy. But now it has made me, you know, it's funny. Now, when I, as collecting, when I look at the signatures that you guys have, I do sit there and I look, oh, 
this is a signature he did in the middle of when he was doing it. This was a beginning. You can almost tell when they sign because I know it's like when you're getting tired, <laughs> what your signature looks like, and you'll get sometimes you'll get two of the same, you know, just uh, and you'll and you'll be able to compare when they, you know, is their signature always the same or do they have a tired signature? Do they have a neater signature? You know, depending on when they started signing. All right. So, wow, you're just a pro. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm a pro, but I do. I do notice the weirder things. <laughs> So along with that, obviously very exciting in your life. Clearly, you've just, you've had a, you've had quite a, a recent run now. I mean, not only named as the moderator of Meet the Press, but I mean, as a I read up on this as a Packers fan and a University of Miami fan, football wise. I mean, you've had quite is a season here with both of them. Maybe not Miami, except for that last play. Did you did you see that? <laughs> Well, I watch every game. I watch every minute, even blowouts. Um, so I never miss a thing. And I, I, you know, I woke up my whole house. Normally Saturday night, I'm, you know, everybody goes to bed early in my house Saturday night because I work Sunday morning. And um, I woke up the whole house on that play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet. I mean, and battled, for, battled my poor wife out of bed. Uh, yeah, and and just to give listeners uh, context, if if they if they haven't seen it, which means that you've avoided uh, the TV for the last week. But they, um, I mean, boy, the University of Miami, I don't, I'm not on, honestly entirely sure how many laterals were involved in this. Eight laterals. Look, I'll say that. It was eight laterals. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy. Oh, this should have been called, or this should have been called. Yes. Um, my beef is I was just as angry at the officials for the play before because they allowed a touchdown that wasn't a touchdown. Ah, that's true. The the ball had not crossed the goal line, and had they ruled it correctly, they never would have gotten another playoff and mine would have won. I look at it this way. All the bad officiating evened out, and the the result of Miami winning should have been the result in the first place, and that's the result we got. That said, I'll I'll admit, that was a total mess. (laughs) That's a word for it. It was pretty impressive. You know, the eight laterals was pretty impressive because every lateral was legal. To do that eight times and not screw that part of it up, there's one block in the back that I've seen on replays that's legit. Other than that, there were no. But I, I you know, it's still. By the way, the Stanford Cal play mm. would have been would not have made it review. Immaculate reception would not have made it under review. So, and this know. is definitely up there with those. That's for sure. I, mean, I think so. I mean, the human element, the human element. What's great is, is it's given Miami this sense of like you know us against the world again. And you know, Miami is. The University of Miami football program needs a little bit of of of, of hate coming their way <laughs> to fire them up. Yeah, they and did so well with like, that. Exactly, and now that they've got like you know, it was amazing to me how the punditry class of sports just came. To, oh my God, they must. This is so unfair to Duke, and I'm thinking, really? Like this is a a game that has no meaning on the national title, no meaning on any of this stuff. But it just it reminded me, God, there really is this hatred of Miami that still exists from the old days. Because it was all like sort of predictable elements coming after him, and and apparently Miami had its best practice that it's had in five years on Tuesday. The players were fired up. They were like, "Look at this! The world hates us. Let's go!" You know, so no, this could maybe this is what finally turns around Miami's program. Yeah, exactly. No new coach needed. Just a ton. Yeah, a just ton a little hate. fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, you have quite the knowledge base with sports, and clearly that developed early, potentially because of baseball card collecting. Uh, but you also, of course, have a gigantic knowledge base in the political world, and well, I've always thought baseball and politics go hand in hand pretty well. <laughs> you know, they're, they're both they're very they're, the stats are everything. 
Yeah, and when did you when did you first kind of realize that? Oh, you know, it was when I moved to Washington that I realized that you know I would I would meet uh, other political reporters who had deep knowledge of baseball. Um, I'd meet members of Congress who had deep knowledge of baseball in ways that they didn't have with any other sport. Yeah, they might root for football, but 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 it was like the guys that were smartest about politics and understanding political strategy and campaigns and all that. They were the same people that had they were just as passionate about baseball. And so I do think it's whatever it is, same part of the brain, the statistical aspect to things, the fact that it's a it, baseball truly is a campaign itself, right? The baseball season, right? It is a six month campaign to try to, you know, your, your, your games are your primaries. Maybe I don't know what, but, but it's sort of, I, I don't, whatever it is the, when I can't, I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate the connection until I came to Washington and you realize how many, of the of of the you know more expert political reporters and the more expert political leaders uh, have this have this uh, connection to baseball. Yeah, and there's also you know multiple ways that baseball um, is a, a lot about emotion and the human element, which of course comes into play. Um, yeah. And so it's just a a fascinating way that the sport can inhibit, like you said, the same part of your brain. Recently, I had Keith Olbermann on who who talked a lot about that actually. Um, yeah. and, and so, and especially with advanced statistics now coming into play in both regards, obviously baseball as often in American society was first. Uh, and right. so it's, it's fascinating to all see right. now. All right. now, now I'm going to go on a rant here about sabermetrics. <laughs> okay. I think the sabermetrification of politics is why we're so polarized. The Sabermetrics—I've been very concerned about this, and frankly, that's what I love about the Royals, because the Royals—you could argue—you know—they don't necessarily, you know, they don't necessarily fit into the model of what supposedly Moneyball is supposed to be, and and so it's good to see that that you know sometimes just making contact with the baseball matters, making uh, making the other team, you know. Do three things to stop your one. You know, when you look at Hosmer, that's why I love the Hosmer. Everybody loves that Hosmer play so much. He was basically telling, telling the Mets, "You do three things. You have to do three things to stop my one thing. You know, you got to make the throw to first. First baseman's got to make the throw to home, and the and the and the catcher's got to catch the ball and make the tag. So, you know, why wouldn't you? That's another way of playing percentages. But yet, we're this whole money ball is conditioned to the you know three run homer thing. Point is. Politics is bought into the big data. Okay, that's great. Except it's now gotten rid of persuasion. So now both parties believe all they have to do is find more like-minded people to be with them to get their 50% plus one, rather than the old way of thinking in politics was you have 45% with you, but in order to win, you've got to persuade to get the last five percentage points plus one. And so you had to win an argument with the last 10% of the electorate. Now... Because we we can mine data. You don't have to win the argument. You just have to find basically mine voting files for more people that agree with you. Again, it is a way to win. The problem is, if that's how you win, you're going to govern the same way. If you have to win by persuading, you're going to govern as a compromiser. If you don't have to win by persuading, you'll never govern as a compromiser. So I think big data has the unintended consequence of it in politics is that it is, it is uh, encouraged 
the polarization. It is only help exasperate it. And you know what? You sound a lot like a moderator. <laughs> right in the right. There you go. I do my best. Yeah, and and so when you were tabbed as the moderator for Meet the Press, I mean, what was that what was that like to be given that very weighted responsibility? It, well, it was it was look, on one hand, it's the dream job of American politics. I absolutely believe that. Right? If American political journalism, you think, boy, that's that's something else. So on one hand, it was sort of like a pinch yourself moment. Um but it, it is, you know, I do, you do feel as if, it, I think it does come with a large responsibility. And it's like, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's personal responsibility with it. And that, you know, it's the longest running TV show in American history. So don't screw it up. You don't want to be the last moderator of the longest running show <laughs> true. in TV, right? Because that, <laughs> yeah. that goes away. Yeah, no one wants so, to be in that last Saturday Night Live Exactly. Cast. You are, you know, you are simply a custodian. So there's that aspect. Um, and there's this idea that, look, you know, there was Meet the Press and there was everybody else. And, yes, there's plenty of competition now, but there is this sense of, okay, you know, Meet the Press is supposed to be the trend driver here. So you just – anyway, you feel you feel the responsibility, but you also look at it. I just, you know, it's such a – it's a, an honor and an opportunity. And so, you know, you're ones under the belt and, and you know, you, you try to grow and you want to – I want it – you know, I want it to survive and evolve in the 21st century. And so, you know, it's it's pretty cool to have the opportunity to help do that. And so I'll finish up our interview with this. When you hang up your spikes or whatever fancy shoes you have, what <laughs> what do you want people to say about how your career went? Um, you know, that uh, I, my goal is to make people feel as if they understood American politics better, that I help them understand it better and explain the why. I always look at it this way. My job is to explain the why um other people you know i think sometimes wish that that we would use our media platforms to tell people the way it should be now that's not democracy okay um it, it just isn't i think our job is to explain the why it's to push back and make people defend their ideas defend their positions try to bring it out of them but so i hope that when I'm done, people will feel as if, well, he did his best to help explain what was going on, explain why voters vote the way they do, explain why politicians act the way they act, uh, and explain why ideas end up, what ideas and do end up becoming law and which ones don't. Uh, and, he did, he, it, and he helped make it a little easier to digest, a little easier to understand, and, oh, by the way, hopefully, made me more interested in it. I mean, I do want to be an evangelist for making people want to enjoy following American politics. It's A, it's important, but, uh, but B, it's, uh, you can have a good time doing it. Too. Thanks for listening to Tops Talk, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tops Talk. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email at topstalk at tops.com. Special thanks goes out to Clay Laraski and Leanne Minutoli, Matt Blyberg, Natalie Kuchara, and Chuck Todd. This has been Episode 9 of Top Stock. Top Stock.